Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the 32nd annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities began with a virtual 130th birthday party for Zora and continues as a hybrid event all month in her hometown of Eatonville. We say that Zora Neale Hurston and the Eatonville community are two sides of the same hand. We'll talk with Connie Lester about editors of the Florida Historical Quarterly, past and present, We've had six full-time editors. Of those six, two of them have more than 60 years as editor. And we'll visit the Matheson Museum in Gainesville. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. When I get in Illinois, I'm going to spread the news about the Florida boys. Shove it over. Hey, 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 you'll catch a line at Oh, In the 1930s and 40s, writer, folklorist, and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston was a celebrated figure of the Harlem Renaissance. Hurston is best remembered for her 1937 novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, the story of Janie Crawford and her soulmate, Tea Cake. Hurston's other novels include Jonah's Gourdvine, the story of an unfaithful man and his tolerant wife, Moses, Man of the Mountain, a retelling of the biblical story of Moses, and Seraph on the Swanee, Hurston's only book with white people as main characters. As an anthropologist who studied under the renowned Franz Boas, Hurston published two collections of folklore, Mules and Men and Tell My Horse. Hurston also wrote dozens of short stories, essays, and dramatic works. By the time Hurston died in 1960, she was broke, forgotten, and her books were out of print. Today, Zora Neale Hurston is again recognized as an important 20th century writer. In 2018, her book Barracoon, written in 1927, was published for the first time. Since 1990, a festival honoring Hurston's literary legacy and impact on culture has been held in Eatonville, Florida. Hurston grew up in Eatonville, the oldest incorporated town entirely governed by African Americans. N.Y. Nafiri is founding director of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community and the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. For Zora Neale Hurston, Eatonville represents the quintessential cultural impact that people of African ancestry, particularly rural southern uh, people in this country, contribute to the culture of the United States. And because she grew up in Eatonville, an all-black community, where there was not artificial lens of viewing people, as she says in, in Mules and Men, in Eatonville you got what your strengths brought you. Uh, if you were an energetic, aggressive, um, productive person, then that's who you were. 
if you were a lazy, no-count, ne'er-do-well, that's who you were and you couldn't use as an excuse what they or the outside society did to you or against you. And at the same time, as a trained observer, as a person who had studied under Dr. Franz Boas, uh, a father of American anthropology, as a person who uh, had access to her native village and that community, she recognized the beauty, the intrinsic beauty, of the people of her heritage group and not only recognized that beauty, but was able to present it in a way that others can recognize it. Uh, perhaps not so much during her lifetime with her contemporaries in Harlem, uh, some of whom thought that she was entirely too folksy, but the point is that uh, work that is truly of merit lives, and today um, Zora Neale Hurston's work, her literature, her genius is acknowledged and celebrated uh, throughout the literary world. Zora Neale Hurston's literary career began even before she graduated from Barnard College in 1927. In 1925, Hurston's short story Spunk was included in a respected anthology called The New Negro. While attending college in New York, Hurston worked with Harlem Renaissance contemporaries, including Langston Hughes and Wallace Thurman, on the literary magazine Fire. After earning her Bachelor of Arts degree in anthropology, Hurston continued her graduate studies at Columbia University. In 1929, Hurston moved to the quiet town of O'Galley in Brevard County, Florida, to write her first and most important collection of African-American folklore. Florence M. Turcott is literary manuscripts archivist at the University of Florida. Zora came to O'Galley in um, April of 1929, and she, her goal was to find a little place where she could, she could write and she could have peace and quiet. Um, she found that in a one-room cottage here in O'Galley, um, and she rented it. She had a, a pretty good rental agreement, and she used that time to fish in the Indian River and to enjoy nature, and she put together her folklore stories in a book which was published called Mules and Men. Virginia Lynn Moylan is author of the book Zora Neale Hurston's Final Decade, published by University Press of Florida. The book Mules and Men was published in 1935 and was essentially a nonfiction account of Hurston's adventures and experiences as a folklorist and anthropologist in the late 1920s and early 1930s. It's divided into two sections. The first section is devoted to her experiences in Eatonville collecting folklore and includes 70 of her glorious folktales, including why women always take advantage of men. The second section covers the period that she uh, did research in New Orleans into hoodoo religion and practices and even became a priestess. And the book is important not just from the standpoint of its entertainment value, but it was the first book of folklore that recorded the tales exactly as they were spoken. And today it is still considered the preeminent collection of African American folklore. In 1937, Zora Neale Hurston wrote her best-known and much-loved work, Their Eyes Were Watching God. 
Flo Turcotte, Lynn Moylan, and N.Y. Nathiri. Their eyes were watching God. It's just, it's, an, it's history, it's fiction, it's pathos, it's, it's tragedy, all rolled up together in one incredible literary gem. And it, making history come alive is sort of what, what I'd like to do and what Zora, that's what excites me so much about Zora is that she, she, di she fictionalized real life and said a lot about the human condition and a lot about life in Florida during, during her um, stay here. My personal favorite work of Hurston's is by far Their Eyes Are Watching God. It's a, no it's a beautiful novel. It's a love story about a woman who not only finds her true love, but she finds her own inner strength and her voice. And it just doesn't get any better than that. Zora Neale Hurston is a part of my family lore. I did not really understand who she was in the literary uh, realm until I was uh, older. I was actually, I actually read Their Eyes Are Watching God when my, after our first son was born, uh, that, that book was a Penguin classic that cost 99 cents. And when I was trying to, uh, while my son was napping, I would, that's how I, that's how I read that book. I, I know Zora Neale Hurston from my, my mother's mother uh, telling us about her, her uh, companionship with Zora Neale Hurston, sometimes uh, scaring me uh, with uh, uh, folk tales from Zora Neale Hurston. Uh, in fact, my husband uh, did uh, literary research on Zora Neale Hurston. There are any number of people that were around me over a period of time, uh, but I did not truly come to understand who she was until I read that book and um, then began to reconnect some of the, uh, some of the impact that she that she had. Throughout the 1930s and 40s, Zora Neale Hurston was celebrated as an accomplished and sometimes controversial writer, folklorist, and anthropologist. In 1948, Hurston was devastated when she was falsely accused of molesting the 10-year-old son of her former Harlem landlady. The charges were dismissed and the boy recanted his claims, but Hurston's reputation and career were destroyed. And why theory? She was falsely accused of molestation of a a young boy, um, falsely accused, completely uh, vindicated because she was not in the United States when the alleged abuse occurred or, or crime occurred. But the black press um, picked up the story after she was vindicated and uh, really ruined her reputation. Uh, I think that she f uh, fled back to her home state. After leaving New York, Hurston lived briefly in Miami and Belle Glade before moving to Brevard County. She moved into the same O'Galley cottage where she had been happy and productive at the beginning of her career. When Hurston was unable to purchase her cottage in O'Galley, she moved to an apartment in Cocoa and then to a trailer on Merritt Island. During this period, she worked as a librarian. Virginia Lynn Moylan. Hurston was fired from Patrick Air Force Base as a technical librarian, basically because she supported a whistleblower um, colleague. 
who had turned in one of his supervisors for destroying documents without going through the proper authorization. So she collected unemployment for a while and finally was offered a job by a man named C.E. Bolin who had founded a newspaper in Fort Pierce called the Fort Pierce Chronicle. So she moved very soon afterward and went to Fort Pierce to take the job in 1957. Sora Neale Hurston died in January 1960 in the St. Lucie County Welfare Home. She was broke, forgotten, and her books were out of print. Florence M. Turcott. She was a ward of the, of, the, of the county, and when she died, her effects thus were ordered burned. They were ordered destroyed. Um, nobody had come forward to claim them. Um, a friend of hers who was a sheriff's deputy was going by the nursing home at the time and stopped and literally doused the flames and uh, saved a bunch of her um, manuscripts that were uh, about to be destroyed. Today, Zora Neale Hurston is more popular than ever. The 32nd annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities began this week with a virtual 130th birthday party for Zora and continues as a hybrid event all month in Eatonville. Hurston's work is taught in high schools and colleges around the world. And why theory? An IB International Baccalaureate uh, teacher of 11th grade students in Hampton, Virginia is planning to uh, bring her students to Eatonville for a field trip. And as we were talking about the planning and the budget, I said, well, will they be uh, doing Disney or Universal? She said, no, <laughs> we're coming to Eatonville. And that's the only reason that we're coming to Florida is to coming to Eatonville. And after we do this uh, day, then we will be returning. So it's, uh, it's quite interesting to see that now, if you're going to be educated, you have to have read Zora Neale Hurston. We spoke with Virginia Lynn Moylan, author of the book Zora Neale Hurston's Final Decade, Florence M. Turcott, literary manuscripts archivist at the University of Florida, and N.Y. Nathiri, founding director of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community and the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. The cam got a pistol, he tried to play bad, but I'm gonna take it if it make me mad, shove it over. Hey, hey, oh, can't you lie now? I a like a like a like a like a like a can't you move it? Hey, 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 oh, can't you try? This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Bit by bit, put it together. Piece by piece, only way to make a work of art. Every moment makes a contribution. Every little detail plays a part. Having just the vision's no solution. Everything depends on execution. Putting it together, that's what counts. Joining us now is Dr. Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of Riches of Central Florida, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, as I just said, you're Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. What does an editor do? An editor, especially of a state journal, wears many, many hats. If you're editor of a national or international journal, you have a large staff to do many of the chores. But if you're editor of a state journal... It's pretty much you. And uh, so I do a variety of things. 
I go to conferences to hear papers, and depending on what I think about the paper presented, I invite scholars to submit their manuscript for consideration for the quarterly. Also, every manuscript that comes in, I uh, read all of the manuscripts. Some of them, I think, have potential but are not quite ready to go out to referees yet. I know they won't get a good reading if they do. And so I work with the scholar uh, to try to make changes that need to be made before I submit it to uh, referees. I select the referees based on what the article covers, and I contact those referees. I arrange for them to read the manuscript. By the way, all referees do not know who the author is, so it's a double-blind process. The scholar does not know who read their work, and the referees do not know who the scholar is. Only I know who both parties are. Uh, this helps with the process because you may be reading something of someone you know. Uh, you may be reading someone's work with whom you have problems, and you don't want that to interfere with the reading. Uh, so it's a double-blind process. I choose them. Once the manuscripts come back, the, the reviews come back, I make the decision. If the decision is to go ahead with the manuscript and to move toward publication, then I contact the author. I tell them what revisions need to be made based on the referee reports. When those are done, then it's my responsibility to copy edit the manuscript. If there are images that go with this, then we have to seek permission to publish those images. Once everything is put together for a particular issue, then I submit it to the person who puts it in the format that it needs in order to be published. It goes to the publisher, and then it's all over <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. I'm on to the next issue. Well, what qualifies a person to become the editor of an academic journal like this? All the editors of the Florida Historical Quarterly since about 1960 uh, have all been faculty members at universities, at uh, UF, at uh, USF, or at UCF. Um, so first of all, you're a faculty member. When the job is posted, sometimes in, in some state journals, they ask for someone with knowledge of the specific state. In my case, I was the person who would have this job would be knowledgeable in Southern history so that it's framed in a larger context. So they're all faculty members. They have faculty obligations like everyone else. I had some editing experience before I came. I was the associate editor of the Tennessee Encyclopedia Project. I had public editing experience in primary documents. I worked on the James K. Polk papers while I was in graduate school. And I had been a book review editor for another journal. So I had editing experience coming into it. Well, in 2021, the Florida Historical Quarterly will begin publishing its 100th volume. How many editors has the quarterly had in its 99 volumes? Well, like many state journals, very few, actually. Uh, we've had six editors, six full-time editors. We have had some interim editors when there was a period of time between editors. But we've had six full-time editors. Of those six, two of them have more than 60 years as editor. Um, the first editor, Julian Young, and Sam Proctor both had more than 30 years of, of editing. I'm in my 16th year as editor. 
Wow. Well, you obviously do a whole lot with the journal. As you said, you wear many hats. Uh, What editorial staff, though, assists in the production of the Florida Historical Quarterly? We've had some changes. In 2011, we had an assistant editor, Dan Murphy, uh, who's also a faculty member at UCF. He was assistant editor until 2017 when he moved on to other avenues and things that he wanted to do. Uh, We have interns most semesters, but not all semesters. In 2018, the dean of the College of Arts and Humanities at UCF created a faculty position for someone who would be, in many ways, a managing editor uh, for the 11 journals that are in the College of Arts and Humanities. So he works with us as well. Great. Well, thanks, Connie. Thank you. Dr. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of Riches of Central Florida, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Ounce by ounce, putting it together. Small amounts, adding up to make a work of art. First of all, you need a good foundation, otherwise it's risky from the start. Takes a little cocktail conversation, but without the proper preparation. Having just the vision's no solution. Everything depends on execution. The art of making art is putting it together. This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker is public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. She takes us to the Matheson Museum in Gainesville. The Matheson History Museum Complex is the local history museum for Gainesville, Florida and the surrounding Alachua County community. The complex includes the Matheson History Museum, the Matheson Library and Archives, the 1867 Matheson House, and the Tyson Tool Barn. Greg Young, president of the Matheson Museum's board, told me about the history of the museum. The Matheson family moved to Gainesville from Camden, South Carolina in the mid-1800s, and they completed their construction of their home in 1867. And that is the centerpiece of the Matheson History Museum complex, is the home that was their homestead. Sarah Matheson donated the home to a trust with the Electric County Historical Society in 1977, and we opened the doors to the house and to the Matheson History Museum, which is the old American Legion Hall in Gainesville. We got that going in 1987, I believe. Later on, purchased the former Gainesville Gospel Tabernacle building across the street that was built in 1933 or completed in 1933. It's built over a period of time. That building is now our library and archives building. We also have one other building on the property, which was moved there from a location in Gainesville called the Tyson Tool Barn. It's a small barn, but it's filled with all these tools that, you know, craftsmen would use back in the 1800s and people working out in the turpentine fields would use, you know, building homes with hand labor. So those are some of our holdings and that's some of our evolution. The Matheson History Museum's mission is to preserve and interpret the history of Gainesville and Alachua County. The museum also documents history as it unfolds today. The global pandemic caused by the deadly COVID-19 virus was first detected in Wuhan, China in late 2019. By early 2020, it had spread to the United States. The COVID-19 pandemic altered life as we know it. Social distancing and wearing masks in public became commonplace. The Matheson History Museum wanted to document the ways in which people in the community were coping with the historic pandemic. Recently, the Matheson History Museum started compiling digital material to create an online exhibit of COVID-19 pandemic artifacts. 
Caitlin Hoff Mahoney is the curator of the Methicent History Museum, and she played a large part in the creation of their COVID-19 archive. We had to kind of figure out how did we want to do this because we've never done this sort of rapid response collecting before. So we put together some statements that we were able to put out through our usual press channels to try and get some attention for this so that we could get submissions in from our community documenting their personal experiences. So one of the difficulties that we've had up to this point is that we're only accepting digital submissions right now because the museum is closed. So that's been something that we had to kind of think about because we haven't really had that sort of collecting before. But we really wanted to document the experiences of our community during this. This is something that historians are going to look back at. Our children, grandchildren are going to be very interested in, you know, what were you doing during this time? So we've been able to take the submissions that we've received so far and we've created a digital exhibit um, that's shared on our website. And then in the future, we're hoping that we'll be able to expand what we have so far and include physical submissions as well. And then sometime in the future, put together an exhibit actually at the museum, not just online. Another way that the Matheson History Museum has taken part in history as it unfolds is by offering an official statement of solidarity during this historic time of the Black Lives Matter movement. The Matheson History Museum wants the public to know that they stand for diversity, inclusion, and racial justice. Dixie Nielsen is the executive director of the Matheson History Museum. We are all very distressed and concerned about what's going on um, nationally with all of the incidents surrounding the death of George Floyd. So not only did we put up our support statement, but we're letting people know that once the museum is open again, we intend to have a series of speakers to address this topic. So we're not just saying we support you. We want to be a place that people will come to and have their say and feel better and understand, just like in COVID, that they're not alone in this, that we all are feeling various levels of sadness. One of our taglines for the museum is, this is your museum that focuses on you, our community. And we, we want to be that in lots of different ways. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the Matheson History Museum was forced to temporarily close their doors in March of 2020. They'll reopen their doors soon, and when they do, they'll continue to be a voice for their community and to share their truths and their experiences. In the meantime, the Matheson History Museum has several exhibits you can visit online. To celebrate the 100th anniversary of women gaining the right to vote in the United States, they have an online version of their exhibit titled Trailblazers, 150 Years of Alachua County Women. They also have an online exhibit called McCarthy Moment, the Johns Committee in Florida. The exhibit examines the time between 1956 and 1964 when the Florida Legislative Investigation Committee, known as the Johns Committee, led by Chairman and former Florida Governor Charlie Johns, investigated so-called subversive activities in colleges, civil rights groups, and suspected communist organizations in Florida. The committee targeted suspected gay and lesbian teachers and students at universities in Florida, firing or expelling more than 200 people. To learn more about the Matheson History Museum and to see their online exhibits, including their COVID-19 community archive, go to mathesonmuseum.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and find us on Facebook. 
production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Stay safe and have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.